when black Americans like myself talk about policing or when we encounter police officers, it is a constant fear for our life. In this episode, we'll talk with Dr. Dion Hawkins and his work concerning trauma and communication surrounding police brutality in the black community. This is Campus on the Common, the podcast of bright ideas from Emerson College's School of Communication. Broadcasting from Boston, Massachusetts, I'm your host, Emerson College alumnus and professor of communication studies, Mark Brody. Dr. Dean Hawkins, welcome to Campus on the Common. Yeah, hey, hey, how are you? Thank you. I'm happy to be here, uh, especially to talk about, for me, such an issue that is kind of near and dear to my heart and kind of a pertinent issue in the black community and one that is unfortunately not going away. So, yeah, I'm more than happy to be here. We're constantly seeing in the news police brutality and police harassment stories. Mm -hmm. Most recently, there was a news story that came out about something that happened in North Carolina or perhaps South Carolina where a young lady, a young African-American, was pulled out of her car put into the jail, and she eventually died. Some recent evidence came to light. Could you tell us about the case, and what was the evidence that came to light? Uh, That is the case of Sandra Bland, which was one of the first cases to highlight that police brutality not only impacted black men, but also black women. So that's kind of largely why it gained traction. Another of the reasons why it kind of gained traction is that Sandra was known to be an advocate for Black Lives Matter and anti-police brutality. So it was kind of interesting to see that someone that was an advocate and someone that was, you know, educated and articulate, all of these things that like kind of like typical Blue Lives Matter supporters will say to themselves, this is how you should act. She followed the rules and then it was suspicious that she died while she was in police custody. So that was kind of all very bizarre. And the thing with Sandra Bland, the new evidence is that for the first time, we have seen evidence from her perspective. So the only evidence, all of the footage that we had previously was from the dash cam footage of the police officer. But as of two days ago, Sandra Bland, she recorded it herself. So now we can see from her perspective what exactly was happening. You can see that the gun was drawn really early. You can see that the officer was the one that was becoming aggressive. Yeah, so I think that her video kind of contradicts a lot of what the police officer claimed to be true. I think what's really interesting about Sandra Bland is the fact that she was harmed not only while she was apprehended, but when she was actually in the cell. My understanding is the police officer that was involved with this has since retired from that department. Yes. If I'm not mistaken, I think that that is the case for sure, but retired, but that but was not fired. And I think that's important because a lot of times that will happen is that they will be released, but released does not mean fired. And then the second thing, if I'm not mistaken, and I can look it up real quick, I believe that Sandra Bland's family was one of the few to actually receive compensation for her death. 1.9 million wrongful death settlement with the county and the Texas Department of Public Safety. But there were no criminal charges brought against the police officer. Exactly. So they found it enough, like odd enough for to be kind of reconcile civil damages and $1.9 million, but no criminal charges. In light of this new evidence that's come out, what is your expectation? Do we think there'll be a refiling of charges? Do we think that we'll just the local government will just hope this goes away. What what are your thoughts? It's actually really interesting, especially considering that there's already been a settlement rendered. And I think another thing that's important for us to mention at this moment is that Sandra Bland has one of the cases where she didn't die at that moment. She died hanging in her jail cell. So their argument is that it was suicide, 
her family and other individuals are like, there's no way she would have committed suicide. There was, she had no risk factors, no warning signs of suicide. So I think that it will cause there to be a kind of um, look at the evidence more, I think, if I'm being honest, I think, but I don't think that they will reopen the case because it's hard to, I just don't know what charges they would file because they have a criminal and civil courts are different, right? So we know that to be the case. So even if something is rendered in civil court, it still can be prosecuted in the criminal criminal aspect. But I think the big hard thing is with this is that what are you going to charge that officer with, especially considering how she died and where she died was not at the hands of law enforcement. I understand. Yeah. Now, in terms of how this information was received by the by the black community, mm-hmm. you'd mentioned earlier that typically police brutality is committed against African-American males. Mm-hmm. Now we're seeing a change. Well, are we seeing a change, or is it just coming to light that this indeed happens to women as well? So, yes. Yeah, so actually, it's really important to us to know is that there it does happen to women. It happens less often to women. That type of police brutality happens less often like in terms of like brutal violence, shooting happens less often to women. However, women do report more verbal harassment, more sexual harassment. So there was an officer, Daniel Holtzclaw, who made it his over his decades of being a a police officer. He was systematically raping and sexually harassing black women, poor black women in particular. Kind of pair that with Sandra Bland because Holtzclaw was about two to three years ago as well. And it kind of really shed the light on the fact that while different, black women do experience brutality in a different way, but still brutality to the extent of black men. And I think that that's really important because often we don't talk about the fact that black women are impacted and black women often kind of have to carry the weight of advocacy. So like Black Lives Matter was started by three black women. So like all of that sort of thing is that the kind of Say Her Name campaign is kind of highlighting why we need to talk about black women with police brutality as well. One of the perspectives I'm very interested in hearing as a as a Caucasian American, mm-hmm. I have one experience typically with the police. Mm-hmm. When I hear about police brutality against African Americans, I don't have context to it because that hasn't been my life experience. Why does it seem like the police have more violent interactions with the black community versus the white community? There are lots of reasons, but I'll go into... Okay, so I think the first thing, it's important to note the history of of policing if we're going to talk about the current modern day, because in the South in particular, our modern day idea or paradigm of policing literally stemmed from slavery. So in the South... They used to have what were called slave patrols. So then slave patrols who were plantation owners would literally then become the sheriff of the local police department. Policing in the South was never designed to be equal. And even here, Boston actually has the first police force, like in the country. Even here, policing was never designed to prevent crime. So if you look into the research, if you look into the history of policing, in the 18th and 19th century, when we were pushing towards industrialization, there were what people called riots. Well, they really weren't riots. They were workers protesting fair wages and safer workplace standards in terms of factories. Then that's when we saw policing become a thing. So police officers literally were invented to curb what they call disorder and were invented to basically make it so people couldn't protest anymore, right? So I think we have to understand that 
policing was net literally and if you look at the research in history it was never about preventing crime it was always about preserving current social order and social stratification and if we talk about why black community and the white community in America have such different kind of perspectives on policing. So I think there's definitely the historical aspect of it. To be completely honest, it's as if we live in two completely different worlds when it comes to policing. So whereas you may have been raised to view as you go to the police when you're in trouble, I was raised to don't ever go to the police because you're going to be the one that they think did it. Or don't ever go to the police because if you go to the police, then you are going to end up harmed or brutalized. And I think a huge thing of it is kind of the idea that it's it's systemic racism, right? Police officers, some get anti-bias training, some don't at all, and they perceive blackness as a threat, especially when it comes to black men. Black men are always going to be viewed as more violent or even like have, there's even evidence of this superhuman strength. So even the man who shot, the officer who shot Freddie Gray was like, oh, I, I had to shoot him. He was almost like not human-like. And it's like, well, how... How is that even possible? Black women are perceived as angry. And, and the sad thing is, is this goes even before you become an adult. So the school to prison pipeline is another example. So black um, boys and girls are significantly more likely to be arrested in school and placed into juvenile detention for arbitrary things such as talking back to a teacher. So whereas a white student would talk back to a teacher, it could probably be, oh, well, they having a rough day or let it slide. If a black student does it, it's not only met with like reprimand by the teacher, it's met with calling the police. So I think there's lots of lots of factors. There's over-policing of, the, of communities of color, particularly black community. Stop and frisk is a huge thing that kind of elevates police brutality. Broken windows policing was a huge thing that kind of research suggests the idea that you have to stop smaller crimes or else larger crimes are going to spiral out of control. So the idea that if there's vandalism on the side of a building, we have to deal with that. We have to police that community heavily so then murderers don't think it's okay to commit crime there. So that was a big theory ushered in in the 1980s that really changed how policing works and who was police, how often they're policed. Um, and the last thing is, is due to the over-policing, I am just more likely to encounter a police officer than you are because there's more in the community than in your area or your jurisdiction. Can you talk about the multi-generational trauma that's affected the African-American community by virtue of their experience with the police? Yeah, sure. So this is actually one of the huge takeaways from my dissertation because uh, my background is in public health, so I want it very much so to kind of bridge the gap between the communication and the public health world, so health communication. And I knew from experience, talking with friends, that when we view police brutality, when we see videos, it's a very much negative and a visceral reaction. And I kept thinking to myself, I'm like, this this can't be normal. Like, this has to be impacting the way that black Americans kind of go about their days. And my dissertation proved that to be the case. So if we talk about kind of the multi-generational aspect, so I think first it's important to talk about how kind of what evidence there is right now of research indicating that like racism itself so microaggressions dealing with kind of systemic racism that in its own has been proven to have a negative impact on health. So it's called weathering. So for example, a study done in 2016 found that when controlled for income, occupation, stress levels, 
control for everything else. Black women's chromosomes. So black women's literally their genes appear seven years older than white women just due to racism. And if we talk about multi-generational trauma when it comes to police officers, there was never a time in America where the black community had good relationships with the police. So if, if you think about like my grandparents, for example, so my grandparents grew up largely when segregation was still a thing, right? So they remember seeing things like Bloody Sunday on the TV. They remember hearing stories of some of their friends, family members being beaten at the hands of police. So then those lessons are passed down to the parents. Parents pass those lessons down to me. Um, and I'm going to pass those lessons down to my kids. So, and when we talk about what trauma looks like, it looks like kind of debilitating sadness, avoiding things at all costs. So people don't recognize that that is a sign of trauma. So if I have the desire to avoid police officers at all costs, that's a sign of trauma, a big sense of helplessness. So that's one thing that is happening right now too, is that, you know, a lot of people, when African Americans, when they encounter the police, may say, no matter what I do, the police officer is always going to find my my blackness to be a threat. They're going to find a way. They're going to find a reason for them to inflict violence or intimidation on me. So when we talk about the traumatic aspect, I think that that's, that's important to talk about. It almost sounds like a cultural element in that as a, as a white person, I've never had to have the talk with my children. Right. But yet what I'm hearing is something that's very common in the black community. For a young person talking to their parent who's now receiving the talk, what type of impact does that have on their psychology? I think that black kids have to become more mature earlier. So I don't know if you're familiar with the case of Tamir Rice, but this is a perfect example. So Tamir Rice was a 12-year-old in Cleveland, Ohio, who was playing with a toy gun. Someone called the cops. Even though the cops knew it was a child, the cop literally said, oh, it's a toy he was still shot and killed, a 12-year-old. There's just no world where I think that a 12-year-old white girl or a 12-year-old white boy can be outside playing in a park with a toy gun and an officer feel it is necessary to shoot a child and to kill the child is absurd to me. So I think that's the first thing is that black kids are unfortunately having to mature quicker because once they hit puberty, not even hit puberty, because like I said, it's it's kind of in the research that as young as kindergarten, teachers have more negative views towards black kids to be more violent. I was six. I remember when my dad sat me down and at six years old uh, said, you may see me get pulled over by a police officer. This is what I'm going to do. You have to do the same thing. When you get older, it's always yes, sir, no, sir. Yes, ma'am, no, ma'am. Make sure your hands are visible at all times. Don't back talk. As a six-year-old, that stuck in my mind because he was very adamant about it. And kind of my research indicates that in my dissertation, I found that of all of my respondents, every single one of them reported having the talk early, like before age 12. When I tell my wife friends this, they're like, we literally never had a talk about the police. Like my white friends are like, it's the, I was, it's the opposite for me. They said, we just, we never thought, and our parents never talked to us about the police, which is mind boggling to me. Like I said, it's like living in two different worlds because as soon, especially once you get into like high school or once you start hanging out with friends and you know, going to the movies, things like that, middle school, high school years, your parents are very vigilant and, and scared about what can happen because even the quote unquote good kids have been victims of police brutality. Is there any spillover when you look at 
having the talk at a young age and how a young person most likely would then perceive the police, how do they look at authority in general after an experience like that? Oh, that's a good question. I think that I don't know if how to answer the question because it's so contextualized to police specifically. Is the context limited to just police in terms of authority? How would a young person who's just been given the talk, how would he then look at other authorities that don't look like him? From my experience, from my upbringing, and also from the experience of kind of of my family and friends, the black community does follow a very much respect your elders mentality and respect authority figures kind of mentality. But I don't know if that stems from policing, if, if more so if that stems from like a generational aspect of respect, like over the years. Help me understand. Should I say African-American community or should I be saying black community? African-American is kind of colloquially the more politically correct term, but I think that's just because black has been viewed, has been used negatively by kind of people of power to oppress. So, for example, if if someone were to say blacks compared to African-Americans, black sounds way more like offensive or off. But that's just because of the semantics and the history of the word. Both are technically correct, but I think for the most part, people respond, quote, better or are less offended by African-Americans. But the thing is, it's important to note, though, that that term is technically incorrect depending on your population you're speaking on. So African-American refers to individuals that were born in the United States. So I am an African-American. I was, my parents were born here. Um, I was born here. Black does refer to me, but black also refers to other individuals in the diaspora. So for example, Boston's a perfect example. So Boston has a high rate of Cape Verdean, Jamaican, Haitian. So those individuals are black. They're not technically African-American. So a lot of times when we talk, when we conflate the two, it's technically incorrect, which is why my dissertation makes it a point to say black, because research indicates that when you talk about accents and immigration, that impacts police brutality as well. So people with accents are brutalized at a higher rate. So black immigrants also experience police brutality. So that's why it's important to know the difference. So black can refer to anyone across the diaspora. African-American is just two people that are born here. You mentioned that the police brutality is more prevalent with immigrant communities, people of color who are immigrants. Mm-hmm. How does that happen? Does a cop know by virtue of their how they're dressed? I mean, do they have a chance to understand the accent? Is it done by geographics? Sort of, we're in this particular neighborhood, so it might be a Haitian or Jamaican neighborhood. Ergo, I'm going to be a lot more aggressive in how I enforce my policing. So most of the research is situated in the context of stop and detain with immigration. When it comes to immigrant communities, it's a more so once the interaction happens. So for example, some cultures, a lot of Caribbean cultures in particular, have been known to like enunciate more harshly or enhance or increase volume at a, a quicker rate. So these are things in the community that are normal, even in the in the in the African American community, are, are traits of cultural communication that we understand with each other. But the moment that it is taken out of that context, it is misperceived, and then that accent is perceived as anger. So, like if I start speaking quickly and I furrow my brow and I raise my voice in my community, that's just how we talk. To an officer that's white, that's perceived as anger. 
then that's when it escalates. So anger, threat, escalation. Right. The anger or the perceived anger is rooted in kind of anti-blackness. Have there been positive results where they've actually instituted cultural competence within the police departments? Honestly, the research is mixed. The kind of training that has been proven to be most effective is are two things. One, it's getting rid of the 1033s. Right now, the Department of Defense has a, a program called 1033 program, basically where police officers can, re- police offices, like if, if let's say you are the lieutenant, you can request from the DOD to receive military-grade equipment for your jurisdiction. Obviously, that has some implications because it instead of you perceiving yourself as a law enforcement officer, you then perceive yourself as a soldier, and that, again, has huge implications for your, but you're serving constituents. You're not serving, you're not kind of fighting an enemy. The second thing is, is outside of the kind of cultural competence training, because to be honest, um, while I think cultural competence training can be great, at the end of the day, policing as an institution is systematically racist and it is systematically designed to oppress people of color and poor people. So unless we do a complete overhaul of that system, it's gonna be hard to solve the problem. The second thing that has been proven to be most effective, there are some precincts out in Colorado, particularly Denver, is enhancing de-escalation tactics. Police officers operate on what's called a use of force continuum table. There's kind of check marks there's hand-to-hand combat, there's you can use your nightstick, there's you can use your taser, then you can use uh, rubber pellets, then you use your gun. So the issue a lot of times that we in the black community are saying is that, okay, even if you perceive someone as a threat, why is it that the immediate answer to that threat is always bullets? Not rubber bullets, not a taser, because let's say I find you threatening, right? And if my goal is to apprehend you, I can easily use a taser on you and have more than enough time to apprehend you and bring you in for questioning, and then that be that. But that never happens, right? It's always going to the end result, which is using the gun filled with actual bullets. Some precincts have enhanced the de-escalation tactics and their de-escalation training and saying, this is only, you only use a gun with this. Those have been more effective than racial training. To ask someone to reconcile or change their beliefs of kind of their racial bias is to ask them to overhaul years of socialization that is really hard to do in a three-week training. So the de-escalation tactics are kind of more persuasive or more effective. In those communities where they're applying these de-escalation tactics Mm -hmm. and training, how has that de-escalation tactic been received by the local black community? I'm not all the way familiar with it, to be completely honest, but from what I do understand from my research is that it has had a positive impact on community relations. It has had a positive impact on the number of individuals harmed. And the third thing is that I think it's at least a step in the right direction. So even if it doesn't solve the issue 100%, at least the community recognizes, all right, but they still see something wrong with the way that things are going right now. And at least they are trying to take steps to alleviate this issue. 
I think that for so long, cries of the black community to change police policing, law enforcement have fallen on deaf ears. Unfortunately, making small steps can do wonders. There's no reason why going to the gun is the immediate answer, especially when so many of these individuals have been unarmed. And that's what we have to remember too, is that 95% of these police brutality cases, individuals never had a gun or a weapon. So it's like, in what world was the only way to neutralize the quote unquote threat? like f fatal, like fatal force. Do you see any difference in the way that modern media is covering police brutality in the black community today versus how they might have done it 10 years ago? Uh, no, I don't think that there's a difference in the modern media. I think the bigger difference is, so Rodney King was one of the f first instances we had of someone recording it from like a camcorder. You know, there were the riots after that, after he, after the cop was found not guilty. Since then, with the invention of social media, with the invention of smartphones, pretty much anyone can document police brutality at any time in real time. So the difference is, I don't think the modern media is necessarily covering it any more or any less. I think the difference is access to that information from firsthand accounts, if that makes sense. Because a, a clip can go viral in 24 hours. Then the media may cover it, but the media is not the ones doing the boots on the ground work. So if there's a video clip from Facebook Live or something like right. that, now they've got the content, now they'll cover the story. Otherwise, it might be relegated to page B or below the scroll or not at all. Not at all, right. So, and the other thing too is that police brutality hasn't increased. White Americans' knowledge of it and exposure of it has increased. Does that make sense? So all of these stories, we in the black community know that these are stories that have been happening in our community for literally as long as policing have been a thing. It's only new to a lot of white Americans, yeah. Is it a trickle-down theory? And what I mean by that is because now we've got the video evidence and now we can put it in the mainstream media, white folks can see, well, wow, this is happening. That's not supposed to happen like that. Ooh, I would hope that the answer is yes, but to be honest, I don't think so because some things that are so matter-of-fact for me, so like Philando Castile is a huge example of he told the cop, that he had a gun in his car, he was licensed to carry, he had a permit, he told the cop he had a gun in the car, still, somehow, on Facebook Live, with the daughter in the back seat and his wife in the passenger seat, when he reached to grab his wallet to show his identification, like the cop asked him to, he was shot and killed on video, and still, there were white Americans who somehow found it in logical to say he shouldn't have moved, he shouldn't have did X, Y, and Z, when he was literally adhering to police officers' orders. I think that it probably has a, a kind of awakened some white Americans. I think that there have been some to say, okay, wow, okay, so this is really worse than I ever thought it was. You know, there are evidence in front of me that I see that this, this, kid sometimes followed all the rules uh, or he ran maybe or he or she ran and still was brutalized but on the flip side there are people who will never see anything wrong with what the police officer did so like think of the blue lives matter movement right it's like no one ever argues that police officers lives don't matter and that police officers don't need protection I, I mean I believe that wholeheartedly but their lives are protected 
right now. Black lives are not. So I think it's kind of shown a larger divide in our country. Again, like it's like living in two different worlds. If I was socialized to the belief that the police were good my whole life, then yes, I would find a way to defend the police office officers at all costs. If I know firsthand that police officers have brutalized family, friends, moms, daughters, aunts, uncles, then I'm going to see an example of police brutality and say, mm, nope, that sounds about right for what I've experienced my entire life. As a white person, when I look at these cases of police brutality, it makes my blood boil. Mm -hmm. Having said that, I'm not affected in the same manner that you are as a member of the black community. At the same time, we share this country. We have more in common than what separates us. What can I, as a white person, do to help address this situation? Yeah, so I think the, so first of all, thank you for that question, because unfortunately, this is a, a question or a conversation that so many people aren't willing to have or aren't willing to admit. Anyone that is in a place of privilege, it is their job to call out the BS when they see it, whether that's family, whether that's friends, whether that's in a personal conversation, social media, Facebook, because you getting into it with a family member over police brutality, you have that credibility. They're, you're going to be believed. If I get into it with that family member, let's say on Facebook, I'm just a black person complaining. You can say, okay, listen, I get where you're coming from, but this is X, Y, and Z. This is reasons why it's wrong. They're going to be significantly more likely to listen to you about that. Where your job as an ally as, as, as and an advocate lies is that you're speaking with the community that you're standing for, not in substitution of that community. Does that make sense? So going forward, anyone that kind of identifies as an ally, it's making sure that the points that you are advancing or, or the sentiments that you are speaking for are influenced by the community you are speaking with, not that you're speaking for. Because mm -hmm. allyship is irrelevant if your allyship doesn't include like me. It relies on the person of privilege to combat injustice and systematic oppression and systemic racism. Dr. Dion Hawkins, could you give us three takeaways? Yeah, sure. So the first thing I think is important is that social media now for the black community is more than just a tool of networking or laughs or memes or gifs, things like that. It has become a place of emergency outreach, like in terms of social media. Uh, I mean, it's kind of like live streaming, gathering evidence. Black Americans are significantly more likely to go to Twitter for especially millennials, black millennials are more likely to go to Twitter for news, particularly about police brutality, because they feel like it's more authentic. So if I go follow an account on Twitter, I'm more likely to get firsthand accounts of that video, firsthand accounts of people who saw it, compared to if I see it on CNN or Fox News or even MSNBC, who knows what that narrative becomes after that. That's the first thing. The second thing is that when it comes to policing, I've said this repeatedly, but we really do live in two different worlds when it comes to our perceptions and our interactions with the police. And I think that white Americans and police officers have to understand that when black Americans like myself talk about policing or when we encounter police officers, it is a constant fear for our life, not a ticket. I can get pulled over and my greatest fear is not a ticket. My greatest fear is not a ticket or having to go to court to pay a fine. My greatest fear is if I'm going to leave that interaction 
alive. And I think that that is something that a lot of white Americans don't understand and police officers don't understand because I think if we can all understand that interactions with police officers for the black community inherently become more emotional because we are fearing for our life and like there are literally chemical changes in the body that happen, adrenaline, things like that happen. I think that that is a huge aspect Um, And then the third thing is that as the black Americans, kind of my research suggests that one does not have to experience police brutality firsthand to have signs of trauma. Simply viewing videos or hearing stories enough is, is alone is enough to feel trauma. So whether that looks like helplessness, whether that looks like sadness, whether that looks like hyperarousal. So the idea that I'm on constant alert, when I walk down Boylston Street, if I see police officers, I always know where they're walking or I always know how many police officers are around because I have to be constantly aware of that. That's just a thing and that's a sign of trauma. So it's so normalized though. Almost any black person would tell you that they do that. They walk into a place, they walk into a city, they don't know a building, they don't know walking down the streets, they're going to clock and count how many police officers are there. And while it's normal to us, research says that that's a sign of trauma, which is something that I didn't even know until like I I started to research this in depth. I think that people should really do research into the history of police because once you understand how and why policing, our modern day concept of policing was invented, none of what's happening right now is confusing, shocking, still alarming, but it, policing is operating in the country exactly how it was intended to operate, unfortunately. It was never about protecting. It was always about curbing people that you believe to be deviant and keeping individuals in their quote unquote place. And now we're seeing that police officers will do kind of anything that they feel necessary to keep or put someone in their quote unquote place. There's no, there's virtually no data about this because law enforcement offices across the country don't have to report how many individuals are killed at the hands of law enforcement. All of this that we are, that I'm talking about, we only know from video. So Boston PD, LAPD, NYPD, no law enforcement office across the country is required by federal law to submit documentation or data for how many civilians are harmed by law enforcement. Now, vice versa is true. We know how many officers are harmed by civilians, but we don't know the opposite. So, yeah, that's kind of a a big push right now in advocacy is in order to have accountability, there has to be data. We spoke with Dr. Dean Hawkins and his work concerning trauma and communication surrounding police brutality in the black community. You've been listening to Campus on the Common. I'm your host, Mark Brody. We had engineering support from David Craighead and editorial direction from Andrew Cassidy. Campus on the Common is a production of Emerson College School of Communications. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts.